Hello and welcome back to Cooking Books, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite A-list of food writers. This week, I'm zooming off to Puglia to catch up with adventurous-in-chief and legendary food writer Sophie Grigson, two years after she upsticks and left the UK for a brand new post-kids adventure in Italy. I narrowed it down to three tasks. I do speak a little bit of Italian, but not a lot. Um, so I knew I had to be somewhere where there would be tourism because I thought that was how I'd make money um, somehow. Um, wasn't quite sure how. I asked her to take me to the moment when she put the key in the ignition, left Oxford and headed off to her new home in Puglia. It was wonderful. I wasn't scared at all. I was just so excited that the adventure was beginning. Because I, I kind of, it had taken about, it took just under a year from the moment I thought, damn, I'm going to do it. Uh to that moment and it was just thrilling I wasn't I, you know, I wasn't scared at all lots of people have said oh you're very brave and it wasn't it was just the most wonderful adventure do you know what I mean I think as we get older the kind of what's the worst that can happen thing you must have asked yourself yeah. that what's the worst that can happen what was the worst that can happen well actually do you know I thought well okay the car could break down but you know that's sortable isn't it You've got the AA. Yeah, so that, that's fine. Uh, you know, and so what? Um, I, I didn't think I, I could hate it. I thought that was the only thing that I thought I could get down there and I could decide it was a bit huge mistake and then I've got nothing left at home. But I kind of knew that wasn't going to be the case. So, um, do you know, I think the worst thing, what certainly once I'd made the decision, the worst thing for it would, would have been for it not to happen, to find I was back in my old life, which I'd kind of, I'd done all the goodbyes. I'd said, yeah, yeah, I love you, blah, blah, blah. If that had all fallen through somehow at the last moment, I would have been in tears. <laughs> which was highly unlikely because you'd put everything in place before, hadn't you? Take us through the process. Uh, I decided to do it. I had this kind of like, I did, it was like having a light bulb moment with a light bulb above. I was like, boing, I'm going to do it. I've been interviewing uh, the lovely Russell Norman, whose book Venice is terrific. Um, and uh, he'd spent a year living in Venice, uh, living and going to the markets with the, with the, all the sort of the women and learning how to cook the, really cook Venetian food um and actually it was he was there for a year so i'd been i'd been i'd been sitting interviewing him and thinking a he's incredibly gorgeous which he is and charming and lovely which is very distracting when you're trying to be professional uh and i was just very envious i thought bloody hell why didn't i do that and you know i had wanted to do this when i was just finished university and then I thought I was going to go and live abroad and I was much more anxious about it I realized looking back I didn't want to go I didn't want to go um you know in when going into winter because I thought that would be harder and I didn't want to and I ended up doing other stuff as one does um yeah. and then two days after I'd interviewed Russell Norman I was just flicking I was idly flicking through the internet uh and I just saw an article about a village in a small town in Puglia that was paying people to live there. And I, that was the moment. That was my light bulb moment. And uh, two weeks later, I was out here with my kids uh, so they could see Mother's Folly, and um, <laughs> which they told me about quite a lot. Um, and we visited, we were in Candela, this little village, and um, it was lovely, but it wasn't the right place for me. And I want, I need, a, I know I needed to be, I knew I needed to be further, further south near the touristy bits. Um, but it did confirm that I wanted to move here. So that was it. Yeah. And, and just to kind of fill that in, this is a thing. The Italian government 
is paying people from anywhere in the world to come yeah. and fill up their you know decimated villages all the young people have left there's nothing there and so they want people to come in i mean it feels terribly desperate and it's not just in italy actually it's it's in lots of very poor mm. places in all over the world and lots of people are doing it there's some wonderful mm. blogs that i follow of, of um you know people from all over the world doing it it sounds like a great adventure but you went deep because you couldn't get to Candela because the money had run out for those those yeah. one euro um, immigrants. You went somewhere else and you went deep, 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 Puglia. You went to the real thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and, I, and when I when I first arrived a year after that Candela moment, um, I didn't I didn't have anywhere to live. I just had me my car and what was in my car. So, uh, which was very liberating actually it's it's wonderfully liberating and uh, so i just drove around it was i have to say when i arrived it was the worst may ever late may and it was pissing down with rain Re- i mean it was not what you think of as beautiful <laughs> it's not i'm the deep south and i was in a jumper um so <laughs> with hindsight that's quite a good time to decide where you're going to live because you're seeing it in the worst lights and uh, <laughs> And you were only going to rent anyway, so that felt a little temporary. You, ha- you hadn't sold your yes, house I, in Oxford, I'd, had I'd you? I'd sold everything. I had oh, nothing so left. Nothing left in the UK. <laughs> wow. I mean, okay, so there is no cushion. You didn't have anything to go back to in Oxford. Nope. Nothing. I have four, that's a lie. I have, four, I have four boxes under a friend's staircase. I can't actually remember what's in them, but they're there. I realise I, I do love not having any responsibility for anybody else except for myself. You know, you, I had kids and I, it was what they're wonderful and I love them to pieces, but, um, just suddenly not having any obligations. Whoa. This is your time. Yeah. It's so freeing. Mm. I hear this not from massive amount of people, but when I hear it is profound. I interviewed yeah. Laurie de, de Mori from the Towpath Cafe um, on the Regent's Canal recently. And, you know, she's done the same thing and she opened this tiny little cafe. But her aesthetic there is about making something from nothing. And she said that it came from putting a pack on her back and doing the Santiago de Compostela walk, you know, the pilgrim's yeah, yeah. walk, with very little in your backpack and realising that's all you have. Letting go of everything and then thinking, okay, well, I don't really need very much. And from that point on, your life changes. Oh, totally. And for the better, totally for the better. You shed that need that you, you start getting it in when you're quite young, but it sort of grows almost imperceptibly. You know, I must buy a house. I must buy a bigger house. I must be doing well. I must have this. I must have the latest that. And you know, you don't have to have any of those things to live no. a, a really good life. And it's, you know, my, I, I now do, well, COVID was a bit of a, a, a bit of a spike in the, in the old plan, but, um, but you know, I, I'm free. I can, uh, yeah, I can go and do, I can please myself. I mean, I do have to earn a yeah. living as well, but that's a small thing. <laughs> But you've always run your own yeah. uh, world, yeah. haven't yeah, yeah. you? You know, f- food writers, you know, you just kind of make it up as you go along and yeah. some things work and some things don't. And so you were doing cookery courses, for yeah. example, in Oxford. Yeah. You were, you're a writer, you've been writing all your life, you make television programs, you know, you do stuff. And, and, you know, you presume you've written a fabulous book about this first 
episode of Your Life in Puglia. Presumably that will go on. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about Truly Delicious, which is what you're, you're working on now. But yeah, you're going to make it up. So you, you're used to that, which gives you a certain kind of set of skills and a mindset, which gives you a freedom in itself. That must have given you enormous confidence. Yes. And I, uh, for my whole life, I've, I've, I've never had that security of a, you know, a set job or bed. I mean, I did when I was younger for a while, but, but never that kind of, you know, I will be employed and looked after. So that's, and also I, I was brought up with two, my two self-employed parents who wrote and who worked from home. So mm. it's never that kind of thing. It's, it's just, you know, it actually just feels normal. And we worry occasionally about, you know, where the next penny is coming from but that's you know it's not you can usually find a way <laughs> yeah that sensibility that your parents would have given you your father was a poet your mother was obviously jane grigson uh she was an adventurer as well i presume they were both adventurers through their imaginations they and you started writing very young too so there was an adventure in your soul what kind of a sense of their adventure did you bring to this adventure do you yeah, think? Um, well when i was a child they didn't seem even vaguely interesting <laughs> you know that's just my parents but yes we did we traveled and they traveled more before i was born once i was young we spent a lot of time in france so i was aware that you could work in a different country and that wasn't a problem at all and they uh uh, so we spent maybe three or four months a year in France and, you know, that, that sense of being free to make up your decisions about how you use your time and not being tied to a, to a regular job and not being, not having that, I think also not having that um, need to compare yourself with the next person, that competitive element wasn't there. They didn't, you know, what they did, they did because they loved it, and which is a very lucky thing for people to have and it's very lucky to be brought up in a household where that is that's the norm so it it's never occurred to me not to be able to go and do things and have a good you know an interesting time having an interesting time i think and they had a, they had an interest now they had interesting friends they went to interesting places they wrote uh they had an interest in the world in all kinds of things but, you know that was just home it's about having a chat with a person in a cafe rather than I think you're right. hiding away. Yeah, it's about being out there in the mm. world and just having a chat, isn't it? So take us to the heart of Chelia Misapica, the your new home. How did you find it and how did you penetrate it, right, to get to the heart of it? I don't know if I've quite penetrated it yet, but we'll get to that. Um, I found it just by driving around and visiting various towns. And I, um, Chelia is in the very much the middle of um, an area called the Valle d'Itria. Um, and I quite soon worked out that I wanted to be in this valley. Uh, I started off my f the first place, second place I stayed in Puglia when I was traveling around was a, was a, an interesting town called Manduria, which I didn't want to live in. Uh, but it is interesting because it's the center of the Primitivo wine industry. So that makes it very interesting. <laughs> um, and then I just drove around in the rain and, um, and I narrowed it down to three towns. I knew to earn a living. So my, ta I do speak a little bit of Italian, but not a lot. Um, so I knew I had to be somewhere where there would be tourism because I thought that was how I'd make money um somehow um wasn't quite sure how um and i didn't want to be in a very touristy spot either so so i'm about 10 kilometers i think 12 kilometers away from ostuni which is much better known than the others and is the big draw around here uh, and i knew although it's a very nice town out of season it's hell in august 
which is hell. Um, so I knew I didn't want to be somewhere like that. And so I narrowed it down to, to three or four towns. I had the, the first place I really fell in love with was a little town called Aurea with a big castle up above, beautiful white, uh, old town. Um, and then there was another place called Loco Rotondo, which interestingly means round place. And it is, if you look, if you, ta- if you have an overhead view of the town, it is, the old town is circular oh, on top of a amazing. hill. It's one, a beautiful town. I love that. Um, then there was another place called Cisternino, which is very close. They're all, they're all close. And there was Chelier. And the first time I came to Chelier, I wasn't that keen. I can remember seeing that. And I don't know why. I just wasn't that keen. And then I came back again and it, do you know, it was, it was just one of those things. I was going to estate agents. I wanted to rent. I was looking at places, trying to find places to rent. I knew the rents are cheap down here, but, um, the guy showed me one place. Nah, it's okay. And then he said, Oh my God, I've just thought I've got an old school friend who has a house in the center of town, which she rents out sometimes. And, um, I'll phone her. And that, and, uh, and sh- we came to see the house. I mean, it's like this two floors. It's not very big. Um, uh, and I, I kind of knew as soon as I walked into the first, what up the stairs, stupidly steep stairs, um, into the kitchen area. I thought, yep, that'll do. Yep, I can see this yeah. one will do me nicely. So that was it. So I rented it for six months and then I bought it. You bought it? I didn't realize yes. you bought it. Oh my goodness. Yes, I bought I it. That. I didn't go into buying it in the book. It didn't seem relevant. Um, the landlord and landlady, um, were my first Italian mates. And, um, and a lovely, uh, I have a great neighbor downstairs. Yes, Maria, who we're going to talk about. The in a wonderful yeah. Maria. Now, you do say that it is, again, forgive my Italian, but Cheetah Gastronomica. See, it's, it's, it's a self-styled Cheetah Gastronomica, uh, which means it's got a hell of a lot of restaurants. Yes. Which is lucky. It's also got a professional chef school, really pretty, with cloisters, with shreds of frescoes around it. It's a very nice wow. place. Space for you there? Are you looking at that and thinking? Hmm. No, I did. Yes, I did look at that and think. And then I went and talked to them and they kind of really didn't get it. Right. Oh, maybe my Italian wasn't good <laughs> enough. So when I said, could we do workshops or something? Uh, uh, they started throwing large prices at me. Oh, I thought, no, 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 that's not what I no. want. But it's nice that it's there. And um, yeah, and so we have a lot of restaurants. And they vary in quality quite a lot. Um, but we do have a Michelin bibbed restaurant, which actually I'm not, I don't think it's that good. Um, and also <laughs> a Michelin starred restaurant, which I haven't yet been to, which is meant to be very good. But, but you don't really need a bit of Michelin, do you? Because you've got downstairs Maria <laughs> and you, you know, you through her, you got, it feels by reading the book that you, you have found your way in largely through Maria. Tell us about Maria and let's go into your first food moment, which is all about her. So Maria, downstairs Maria is a wonderful and she's a very, very much a local woman, doesn't speak a word of English. Um, so our communication, we communicate quite well, but we really communicate through food which is terrific and um i knew when i moved in she had outside her front door her front door is actually directly underneath where i'm sitting now in my bedroom um so uh her outside her front door were two huge beautiful pots of basil i mean like big pots of basil i thought good sign that uh, <laughs> and we started you know and she said hello she's very friendly uh and then there's then there came this moment not that long after I'd moved in when there was a knock on my door um, and a shout she shouts Sophia Sophia Shendi which is Sophie come down 
Uh, I know that. I understand that bit. And I know it's, a, it's like a royal command. And I know it's going to be worth it when she does it. So I shended. And there she, she held out this plastic, small plastic bowl with this lovely sort of goo of red and green and brown goo in it. And she said, and, and I took it back upstairs. And it was, oh, my God, it was it was just the most delicious thing. It was frigitelli al pomodoro. Peppers, they're, they're a particular kind of green pepper, always green. A bit like a padron pepper, only a little bit bigger. Um, cooked with tomatoes. Uh, yeah, well, that's it. And, and a lot of olive oil and basil. And oh my, it was just heavenly. It was just heavenly. And that was how our relationship started over a, over a plastic bowl of frigitelli al pomodoro. Which can't get any better than that, is it? You're talking no. about rent in the first place, you're talking about air conditioning, and then you've delivered a plate of peppers and you're in. Well, I mean, what's not to like there? What's not to be oh, happy about? Absolute heaven. And her recipes are littered through the book, mm. and you can tell that she's a real traditional old-school cook. And that is exactly what Poulian cooking is all about, or that particular part of Poulian. All of it, I think, actually, but yes. Very easy. Uh, it, it is absolutely dependent on having beautiful Mediterranean sun-kissed, sun-ripened uh, vegetables, though. Um, so take us back in your mind only to <laughs> Oxford and g- g- have us cooking that. Could we get anywhere near it? Yes, you can. You can. And um, uh, and I've been doing I've been doing some online classes with people. Funnily enough, quite a few of them in Oxford. Um, and you you can get. You can get pretty close. You ha- you may have to do some little tweaks, you know, maybe add a little bit of sugar for, to make the tomato soup. But actually, one of the things that I discovered here, which really surprised, I've, I've been surprised by many things here uh, in the food and others, but um, is that they use the cherry tomato is the, in, certainly in the summer, is the cooking tomato. So it's not. You'd a, normally use the plum, wouldn't you? The plum and the bigger tomatoes are for making sugo. So you would traditionally boil down huge vats of these ones to make sauce to put by for winter. So, but in a huge number of dishes, it's the cherry tomato that goes in because it's sweet and it has mm. big and mm. lots of flavour. And with something like that, the first dish from Maria, the frigitelli al pomodoro, there's not actually. I mean, there are. It's probably got a little bit more tomato than a lot of dishes, but they don't use them to make a big heavy sauce. They're used almost as a flavour, as kind of an accent to provide a bit of umami in a dish. They're almost like a seasoning. So you might get a dish of pasta of some sort, uh, maybe the pasta ceci uh, with chickpeas. And where you're getting a dish for four people, you'll maybe have 12 cherry tomatoes. And in the, in the frigitelli al pomodoro, Maria's version anyway, you use cherry tomatoes. So you, and the cherry tomatoes in the UK are usually very, very good. Yeah. You, you get that lovely sweet one. So you can get something, maybe not quite the same, but close. Well, yeah, yeah we yeah. can get the spirit yeah. of it. Unlike the Orecchiette al Cima de Rapa made in mm. Bari. Now that is, you have to go there. And, you know, we, nobody has left their homes for so long now we can only dream <laughs> take us to the pasta grannies in the little squares in bari making the arachiete no longer posing for the tourists because there are no tourists but making this particular pulian pasta so uh yes so in bari in the old town when you when you walk through the street and there's there's a particular area but there's more women scattered around the place doing the same thing um but there's one there's a couple of particular streets where the the Actually, it's both young and old women. Um, they're sitting at tables outside, 
in the summer when it's warm enough and they are making orecchietta which is a little ear-shaped pasta uh, pasta here is because Puglia was an exceptionally poor area um, all the pasta is made with just uh, flour and water it's not got egg in it um, so they make this pasta dough and they sit there with their tables out rolling dough chatting to their mates chatting to tourists who want to chat to them and making orecchietta and they do it i mean my god they make it look so easy they can do it they barely look they do it, and they're just saying Phew, f-f-f-f-f-f. And they do it at an amazing speed. Uh, and I can tell you, when I've had, it is not that easy. It really <laughs> is not easy. It? Yes. <laughs> and it's, uh, I, I've spent, I think I've now just about cracked making it, but the speed bit, I think you have to have years and years of practice from being a little girl and which I, so I'll never sit down and make Arachete for 12. No way. Um, <laughs> but yes, but they sit there doing this and they're, they're lovely and, and very, uh, not, too long after about six months after i've been here i was um i got a notification from, from oh it's a the pullian tourist but they also have talking about the the pasta grannies because of course they don't follow the sort of food hygiene laws um which are essentially the same as the uk i mean but this is italy so it's yeah, different. Um, but they've now made special exceptions so that these women can make their orecchietta out on the street without breaking any uh, European laws. How funny! How <laughs> funny! Fabulous. I'm very interested in the fact that you said there are young women making these orecchietta as well. That <laughs> pleases me enormously. It's not something I hear very often from people who are telling stories of you know what's happening in Italy. You know, and you hear that it's the nonnas now rather than the mamas, and there's problems about the Mediterranean diet sort of losing its mm. touch and fast food coming in, the old ways being lost. I love the way that you talk about the young women in uh, Celia, by the way. You know, just so beautiful. And, and we can see them, of course, you know, absolutely sun-kissed and gorgeous. Mm. Um, are they making orecchiette? I think uh, not as many. Not as many. Uh, so I, I imagine you know, uh, someone like downstairs, Maria, um, who is... I think about 70. Um, and, uh, so people of her generation, huge numbers of the women yeah. would have made those things. Um, I, I do believe that of the younger women, uh, a lot of them have grown up with, in families and with the knowledge. So they will know how to make them. They may choose not to make them because they'll have, you know, the great thing is they, they can now have lives where they work where they have more independence yeah so it's it's kind of the trade-off really isn't it it's losing some of those things i think it's as long as they can you know lots of people come to cooking later you know the amount of people i talk to who grew up around beautiful cooking as children but didn't cook as children until they left and went to university for example and suddenly missed their mothers or their grandmothers cooking and they they find themselves um and start uh revisiting some of those 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 recipes that they do know instinctively and perhaps those women that you you describe those young women uh will and men oh no and men actually i think it depends on the man but but my ex landlord my lovely friend vito um he's the first person who taught me how to make orecchietti uh and he's very keen on food i think i think probably his wife does quite a lot of the day-to-day cooking but he's learned how to, he knows how to do orecchietti and he taught me several other ones as well uh several other shapes and um so there are more men probably doing it now than there ever have been before which is not saying a lot mm. because it, mm. but they are you know changes is coming 
slowly. But, you know, Puglia still has a lot of uh, unemployment, huge amounts of unemployment. Mm. Cooking is one skill that that is transferable fairly easily to the tourist industry and to yeah. kitchens you know, around here. So I don't think it's going to disappear. It may become more of a specialist thing, maybe. Yeah. Places like Taranto, just down uh, on yeah. the other side, actually, isn't it? You cross, cross over. It's cross not very close, 45 minutes drive yeah. away. It's very poor. I went down there on the um, advice of Emiko Davies, mm. actually, um, and she told me where to go and eat. And I did have some amazing food down there. But you're right, the way that you describe it is it's an old industrial town. It's very poor. But it is your third food moment. Um, tell us why you chose that one. Kotze. Aragonate. Aragonate. It's, uh, grilled, grilled, basically. Um, it's a nice word, Aragonate, isn't it? Um, um, Puglia has this huge, long coastline. It's sort of 500 miles. So seafood is hugely important. But Taranto is, it's a fascinating place. And it is, it's a place of huge contradictions. It was once going way, 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 way back. It was part of, it was one of the most important places in Italian Magna Grecia. So the large parts of Puglia were colonized by the Greeks. Uh, and Taranto has this amazing port. So it's this uh, lagoon behind the, the city, called, which is called the Mare Piccolo, the Little Sea. And uh, so that provided shelter for ships. It, it was an incredibly important Mediterranean port in those days. And gradually it's kind of tumbled down to a place of immense poverty, um, there are these huge um, industrial works belching pollution out across across Taranto. You know, so from this incredible grandeur, you know, it, it's it's really kind of. But they still have that indomitable pride. It's one of the things I love about Italians. Um, is they have this huge pride in their local town, their local area, particularly when it comes to food. And, and, and Taranto has in what in the Mare Piccolo, this lagoon, in, this huge lagoon, is the centre of their mussel and oyster growing trade. And you can, if you find a nice spot just outside the town, you look down across this, you can just see these endless posts strung together where they're, they're fishing the mussels. So Kotze are a huge thing in Taranto. They eat them in, in many different ways. There's a dish that I've had there comes out of stretching food where you stuff the mussels. So you open the mussels and stuff and you do this stuffing on top, which is largely bread based. So using up stale bread with cheese and uh parsley and egg and and, and then it's sort of plonked on top of each one and then they are cooked in a tomato sauce. It's actually quite heavy. But you can see how it was developed because it's about filling stomachs and it's you know, putting that stuffing on top makes it go a long way. It'll be interesting because, you know, a lot of Italian food uh, all over the world actually is characterised by poverty. You know, particularly when Italians have moved to different countries, they've taken mm. their food from the old country with them and, uh, and it travels beautifully. Um, I noticed in Taranto a lot of immigration. A lot of Syrians, a lot of people coming over from war-torn countries, and they will be bringing their food with them. I wonder if Italy would be open uh, to that mm. influence of immigration. Whether you're going to, like Melbourne, you're going to find, I think you have to have that empty 
cultural plate in mm. the first place, like Melbourne did, where the Greeks, the Italians, the Vietnamese put, brought their food from the old country and made it so amazing. I wonder if there would be a resistance amongst the Italians to food from the old country, from other old countries. Big resistance, because Italian food is the best in the world. And why add anything else? I mean, and, and particularly in the South, I think there is a huge res- resistance. People further the north, people in big cities are more open-minded. But down here, there's younger generations have accepted the burger, the hamburgers. We have in Chelia, we have at least two places, two kebaburias. Uh, <laughs> we can get your kebab, kebab with chips rolled up together. Um, uh, but... One of the few things that I miss from from uh, from Oxford and from the UK is I miss being able to just go and grab a Thai or an Indian meal or you know just easily. That's have the one foreign cuisine which has somehow taken hold is Japanese. Interesting. So, so, so but there is a connection here. Um, it's to do with sushi and sashimi because the Puleans love raw seafood. Mm. So they eat a lot of raw shellfish. Oh my God, the raw prawns from, um, from the area around Talento, in fact. Um, the, the little violet prawn, well, they're not that little medium-sized violet prawns and red prawns are divine eating. Amazing. Just raw. Amazing. Uh, absolutely gorgeous. So that, so Puglia has crudo, um, pesce crudo is a big thing here. Not cheap. But it's a big thing. And and so they have that. I think that in to Japanese food has somehow worked. But it's interesting what you say about, you know, the the increase of junk food. Let's call it junk food as a sort of a catch all. You know, you do mention in the book that places like uh, Parmigiano Reggiano, for example, you know, whole areas uh, like the Spanish are becoming much more factory farmed. You can go through that whole area and you won't see any cows in the fields. They never see the light of day. And, you know, one of the most prized and most exported cheeses, you know, comes from stressed cows. That was never a thing. Do the Italians, how are the Italians kind of dealing with that? Why are they putting up with it? Well, certainly the, with the, the um, Parmigiano Reggiano, the Parmesan thing. I, I went on a press trip there, oh God, decades ago, and I asked this. And their answer is that, well, in the middle of summer, it's too hot for the cows. They get sunburnt, uh, literally. Um, and then they, in, in Parmigiano Reggiano, they, they also say, and they could eat the wrong things. Um Okay, this is a sweeping general. I don't think many Italians care an awful lot that these poor cows are shut up in huge, vast hangars uh, and can't move around. And, um, you know, because it's the dairy industry is a massive thing here. I mean, you know, just in my little town, as well as, well as the industrial ones, which are the industrial industry, uh, dairy industry, but around here we've got, around this town, we've got five small dairies, um, whose cows do get out more, particularly one of them, two of them, I know, let the cows out into the fields. Um, but there is so much mozzarella and ricotta eaten here. I mean, just eons, eons of it. No, shed loads of it. That's better. Not eons. Um, shed loads of it. It's, it's the most, imp- I would say it's probably the most important cheese. And you go to any, any meal and there's, you know, there it just is mozzarella at left, right and centre. Mm. It's an essential, it's an mm. essential mm. thing. But it's about the quality. You know, I just I just don't understand 
if you're looking at beautiful meat, for example, or you're looking at beautiful cheese or anything that comes from an animal, there is an impact on on the end product from the way that that animal is kept. If you've got a stressed cow, you're going to taste it, aren't you? Surely it's all about quality. It's mostly about quality. (laughs) I think is is what is. And, you know, down wherever you go, I mean, Puglia is not some it's not some sort of fantasy backwater where everybody still does things in a beautifully old-fashioned way. It's, you know, it's a, it's a part of the modern world. And you can go to the supermarket and many people will be shopping in the supermarket. There are more small shops in towns selling food than there would be, I think, in most, in most small towns that are comparable mm-hmm. size in the UK. Um, so they still exist and they're still used a lot. And because it's a poor area, you know, being able to buy cheaper mozzarella, which may not be as good, but yeah. being able to buy it is, is hugely mm. important for people. So I, you know, it, it's like, yeah. it's like anywhere. It's that, it's, you know, quality versus affordability. Yeah. At, at a, at a loss to the, to the culture. Yeah. And it's a really hard equation to balance. It's a, it's, it's an almost yeah. impossible equation to balance these days. The, chi- the chickens are a little bit luckier. Really, and we'll go to the title <laughs> of your book and your f- final food moment: a curious absence of chickens. What happened to the chickens in Puglia? Well, it's a good question, isn't it? And it is—it's uh, a strange thing. Until actually three weeks ago, I've been here for two years now. Until three weeks ago, I had never seen chicken on a restaurant menu. Never, ever. I was just really curious. Why? You know, and coming from the UK, where chicken is, you know, everywhere. <laughs> So I pondered about this. I asked local people. I asked all kinds of people. And then, you know, they came up with, like, well, maybe it was because it was a dish of the poor. But Puglians have enormous pride in the dishes that come out of the poverty. Mm-hmm. And they're on menus mm-hmm. left, right and center. So that couldn't have been the answer. It took me a very long time to try and to work this out. And then I had a clue in the form of a song <laughs> from the wonderful Puglian comedian, um, Keiko Zalone. Um, and... He has a song that I came across called Nkulu Kuzato, that's the stitched up ass chicken. And it's basically all about this recipe, this Puglian recipe for chicken, which was a chicken with stuff, a lot of stuffing stuff, including chilies. They eat a lot of chilies here. And it was a big, and I started looking up this recipe and then it all unfolded. So if you had in the past if you had chickens you were quite lucky because then you had eggs so you had a regular source of protein in a world where poor people couldn't afford lots of meat they couldn't afford huge amounts of cheese except maybe on special occasions and to sacrifice a chicken for the table was a big thing because you know maybe when they got old and they weren't at their prime laying you might so the only time you would sacrifice a chicken, unless it was an old, an old crock that was only good for stewing, I think, would be on a very special occasion, like your village's saint's day. And that's when you would kill a chicken. And you had to make one chicken go around the whole family and lots and lots of people. So you'd make this huge stuffing that goes in you know, bread based, but if you're very, very lucky, a bit of meat in there as well. And, and it just, occurred to me that that's why you don't see chicken on the menus because it they were so special so when people go out to um for a special celebration they pile on the meat grill lots of meat it's a big 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 festa thing um but chicken 
things. No, we don't eat chicken, really. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Mm. You've already started a, a little catering company called Truly Delicious. Mm-hmm. Uh, little pun there in the truly. Tell us about the, oh. the, the <laughs> meaning there. Uh, so Trulo is um, is a very is a is a typical agricultural building here and live place people lived in. Uh, they are sort of like it's like Hobbit Land, the little conical houses um there's there's a very famous town called alborobello which can i just say do not go there in july august i did once we lasted five minutes it's hell it's like it's like it's been businessified but it's a town where there are hundreds and hundreds of trulos all together and people live there. Anyway, and it's very much a symbolic thing of, of Puglia. Um, so that's why we called it truly delicious little pun there, you know, Anglo-Italian <laughs> pun. Um, and yeah, so we are catering. Uh, well, theory was, because I'm the, and the lovely Rona who I work with, um, we speak a little bit of Italian, but not a lot. The theory was we would go to english-speaking holiday makers and cook Puglian food or anything else they wanted in their fillers um anyway this bit backfired given that there are barely any english speakers here this year there are a lot of germans and belgians uh yeah and a lot of italian to it. so we're hoping to what to cater for their they take over a yeah. villa and they pile loads of people yeah. in and you go and cook for them how lovely yeah yeah this week in fact i've got a birthday event tonight um and a couple of others put this week so it's it's not all doom and gloom so you're doing it you've got the book out you've got the catering company you've got clients even though the world has locked down that's pretty yeah. amazing the luck is on yeah. your side it's been a slow thing i mean it's taken me two years to get to, yeah, to get detail. to this stage detail. but yeah yeah <laughs> you know uh, hey i'm very lucky it's very cheap to live down here yeah well some things aren't but but the basic basic living is very cheap so um i don't need a huge amount of income i i just need enough to make my life pleasant to be able to go out and have a lovely pizza with friends every now and then what's not so like Thanks for listening. You can buy all the books featured on Cooking Books by clicking on the bookshop tab at juliesmith.com. And while you're there, do sign up for the newsletter to keep up with all my news, including the new supper clubs. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And I'll see you next week with a bit of break in tradition with me in the hot seat talking about my book, Taste and the TV Chef, how storytelling can save the planet with food writer B. Farrell. <laughs>